Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 10 is where we are. We're going to finish out this chapter today. We've spent a number of weeks in this chapter, and we have seen much in this chapter. We're about halfway through this uh, gospel, um, but we're really just three months away from Jesus dying on the cross in uh, this record, in this account. Jesus has come up to Jerusalem in chapter 7, and he was there for the Feast of Booths, and, and we are now at the Feast of Dedication. We know it better as Hanukkah. Um, it's been about two half months that Jesus has been in Jerusalem. And when he leaves Jerusalem today, as we're going to see, he's going to leave. He's going to go to Bethany beyond the Jordan. Sometimes it's called Bethabra. He's going to go over there. And this is the last time that he is going to be in Jerusalem until he rides in on Palm Sunday. So we're close to Jesus being killed by the religious leaders. Last week we saw very clearly Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And the way that he went about describing that is by giving us a bit of theology. He says, my father um, holds the sheep in his hand and nobody can snatch them away. And I hold the sheep in my hand and nobody can snatch them away. And because of that, I and the father are one. And that taught us a very important lesson about our theology. If your theology is not functional, if if your theology stays abstract, it is meaningless. You should throw it away. Theology has been designed by God to produce something in us. You remember Romans 8, 28. One of the reasons why I bow the knee to sovereign grace, that God elects, predestines, ordains, one of the reasons why I do that is because Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed in the image of his son. If you don't have sovereign grace, if you don't have God calling and choosing and electing and ordaining that salvation would happen in the life of his sheep, then you don't have the promise of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is a promise that we have because of predestination. So theology should never stay abstract. If it stays abstract, then we should throw that away or we should press into, so what? How does this function in my life? How does this produce something? So we saw here the doctrine, we could call it, of the perseverance of the saints. Usually we hear it that way. It's labeled that way. But the doctrine that once you have been saved by Jesus, you can never lose that salvation is clearly stated here, but it's not just stated there for no purpose. Jesus is using that doctrine and that theology to prove God the Father's doing something. I'm doing the same thing he's doing, so we are one. We are one. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. So we ended last week by saying, who do you believe Jesus is? And how do you believe that you will stay saved? Um, We ended by just staring at Jesus. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to stare at Jesus. And I I pray that as we study these verses, Jesus will, uh, your affections for him will rise in your heart, will grow your love for him, your knowledge of him, but not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, but your love and devotion would grow as well. Let's read these verses. Uh, We'll start in verse 22, John chapter 10, verse 22, and we'll finish it, uh, finish out the chapter. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication, that's Hanukkah, uh, took place at Jerusalem. So this is late November, early December. It's winter, not only uh, in season, but it's also winter as far as 
people's feelings towards Jesus. They're getting colder and the religious leaders want to kill him. Jesus is walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon and the Jews gather around him. They kind of corner him and they're testing him. They're saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. He had told them plainly so many times before that twice they had picked up stones to, to, to kill him. So they know that he has claimed to be the Messiah, but they want him to say that clearly now so that they can kill him. The Jews had said, keep us, don't keep us in suspense any longer. Tell us plainly. And Jesus said, verse 25, I told you, I already explained that to you, but you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, so nobody can defeat the Father and his power. So obviously no one's able to snatch them out of his hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Jesus. They obviously knew he was claiming to be God. They picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them saying, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Jesus answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said to you, you are gods. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I do not do the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I In the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize Jesus, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and Jesus was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man is true. And many believed in him there. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. God, thank you so much that we get to gather here, and and even as we are praying for our brothers and sisters in the world who are being persecuted. Um, the, the technical malfunctions that we experience are, are nothing compared to what they're going through. So God, thank you again for this building, this place, this location that we get to freely worship you. And um, thank you that even the things that we're experiencing today are the first time we've ever experienced them, three years together as a church. Um, God, it, it would not... Um, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that the enemy would love to use those things to take our attention and our focus and our affections away from Jesus. And though the enemy has, in a certain respect, shortened our time together this morning, I pray that your spirit, who is stronger than the enemy and is living inside of us, and raised Christ Jesus from the dead, I pray that he would just supernaturally elongate our time, that we would still accomplish the mission that we have set out to do, to see Jesus clearly, to savor him, to know him, to love him, and to see him on full display here. So God, we pray as we often do from the book of Psalms, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things. We want to see your son. Show us Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.
For our time this morning, just to break this section down, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 42, and we'll just split it up into three sections. We are going to see Jesus on display. We're going to see him clearly. And this morning, we're going to see three things about our Savior. We're going to see, number one, his brilliance, number two, his graciousness, and number three, his preeminence. So Jesus is brilliance. Let's pick it up in verse 31. We're going to see his brilliance on display. The Jews pick up stones again to stone Jesus. Look, if there was ever a time when Jesus, if he was being misunderstood, when he says, I am the father of one, and all he means by that is we kind of do the same things, but we're not truly God together. He's God. I'm not. If there was ever a moment when, if he's being misunderstood, he could tell the Jews as they're picking up stones, whoa, 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 wait, you're stoning me because you think I'm claiming to be God? I'm not claiming to be God. If, as many people say, Jesus never claims to be God, then this section makes no sense because he claims to be God. They say, we know you're claiming to be God and we're going to kill you for it. And he does not say, hang on, you got me wrong. Let me, let me clear this up. I'm not claiming to be God. All I'm claiming is to be equal in certain aspects. Like you and I can claim to be equal in certain aspects to what God is doing. Um, God is a God of love, and we desire to be equal in that of loving others as well. So if there's any miscommunication, now is the time for Jesus to speak up and to say, hang on, time out, that's not what I meant. But Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he's going to reiterate what he said, and they're going to all the more want to seize him and kill him. Verse 32, when they pick up stones to stone him, Jesus speaks to them. He speaks to them. Back in John chapter 8, verse 59, Jesus immediately leaves when they pick up stones to stone him. They pick up stones and he runs out of the temple. But here he stops and he stays long enough to confront his opponents and just demands that his accusers think through what they're doing. Let's just, before we do anything, let's think through what you're doing. I find this amazing. Look at how striking Jesus' serenity is here in the face of the threat of his own life. They have stones. He's speaking to Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders who have stones ready and poised to throw at him. And he says, hang on, can I just ask you a question first? Peaceful, not afraid. And he says this, verse, 20, verse 32, I showed you many good works, many good works, many and good. In Greek, the, the sentence structure gives you emphasis, and these are emphasized. These are in the quote-unquote emphatic position in the sentence. I showed you so many miracles, and they were all good, not morally good, but this is that word back for good shepherd that is wonderful, beautiful. They were all magnificently beautiful works. So, for which of those are you stoning me? The Jews answer, verse 33, we're not stoning you for a good work. We're not stoning you for what you do, but for what you claim. For blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The irony here is amazing. The Jews say, we're going to kill you because you, being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. When the exact opposite is true. Jesus is God, and he became a mere man. He set aside um, the independent exercise of his divine attributes to obediently and humbly accept the incarnation and come and live like you and me. It's the exact opposite of what they're saying. So, 
He says, verse 34, this is his brilliance on display. When they say, you make yourself out to be God, where would you go to defend yourself? He goes to Psalm 82, verse 6, and he says this, Has it not been written in your law? He's not saying this is your law and not my law. He's saying this is your approach to the law, and I'm distancing myself from the way that you view the law. But I'm going to use the law because it's the law. It's my word. And he says this, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to who the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you save him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? You're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. What's he doing here? Go to Psalm. Psalm 82. I want you to see this in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 82. Jesus picks out a very obscure reference. Psalm 82 verse 1. God takes his stand in his own congregation, in his own assembly. He judges in the midst of rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So he's speaking to the judges, the rulers, the shepherds, if you will, the religious leaders of Israel. You're showing partiality to the wicked. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hands of the wicked. You're not doing that, but you should be doing that. You're wicked rulers. They don't know. They don't understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And I said, you are gods. He's speaking to those shepherds. You are judges. You are kings. You are gods with a little g. You have control. You have command. All of you are sons of the Most High. You are extensions of who I am. God is saying, you are uh, extensions of me being the Most High. You're sons. You're equal to me in certain respects. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. So arise, O God, and judge the earth, for it is you who possess all the nations. So Psalm 82 is God saying, I'm looking at my pastors that I've given to Israel. I'm looking at my shepherds, at my judges, at the people that are extensions of my law and grace, and they're not doing what I'm telling them to do. They're wicked, they're evil. Therefore, even though they would say to me, whoa, 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 we're religious leaders. We don't need to do anything. We're the highest. We're the elite. Even though they say that and they're sons of the Most High, they're little G gods, I'm still going to destroy them. They have no place in my kingdom just because they are elite, the religious leaders. I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to judge them and you. That's what's happening in Psalm 82. So why does Jesus go there in John chapter 10? He goes there because he says, hey, don't you guys remember back in Psalm 82, God the Father calls wicked religious leaders in Israel gods. He calls them gods, little g gods, but he, call, he gives them the title of a king over the earth, judges over the earth. And if God called them that, and that's not wrong, they are that then why is it wrong for me to say that I'm a God? Couldn't I be calling myself exactly what God's calling them? Is it really that much of a stretch to say that God the Father calls wicked, evil rulers gods, but me being totally righteous and there's no work that I've done that's not good, you know it, you've seen it, can't I just call myself God? Can't I, is that really that big of a stretch? He's using an argument from the lesser to the greater here. He's saying if they were wicked and God judged them, but he still gave them as an extension of who he was, the title of God, how much more so can I take that title to myself? 
this is an amazing, this is a brilliant place to go. And for a moment, they stop. Picking up stones, wait, he's got a point. They're thinking, they're wondering, what do we do? What do we do with that? This is Jesus' brilliance on display. If you're in the middle of a tense moment, we typically fright or flight, right? We don't really have lucid minds that are able to see and clearly think and clearly interact. But he does just fine. He does this all over the scriptures. He's a master of the Bible. You remember when Satan tempts him. Every temptation is answered with a verse. It is written. It is written. Always brilliantly going back to this book. You remember last year we studied in the Passion Week when the Sadducees asked Jesus, uh, a woman has uh, a bunch of husbands, seven brothers that all get married, they all die. Who is she married to in the resurrection? They didn't even believe the resurrection existed. And he says, number one, you're mistaken. There is no marriage in the resurrection. And number two, you're greatly mistaken because there is a resurrection, even though you don't believe it. And you remember where he goes to prove there's a resurrection from the dead? He goes to the burning bush. And he says, if there was no resurrection, how could God say through the burning bush to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How could God say that? He proves that the resurrection from the dead, that the afterlife exists from the tense of a verb. The burning bush, that's not where I would go to prove that there's an afterlife. But he goes there. Or the Pharisees, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, trying to catch them in their own foolishness, he says, hey, how could David say to God, um, you are my God and you're also going to be my son? How does that work? How does David say, I said to my Lord, you are my Lord? How does that work? Jesus' brilliance is on display here. His command of the scriptures is amazing. It's profound. And the reason why it's such... A profound understanding of the word of God is at the end of verse 35. Because the scriptures can't be broken. Jesus trusts in the scriptures. They can't be broken. They can't be annulled or made void or proven false. It can't be contradictory to itself. It can't be set aside when a teaching is inconvenient. This is Matthew 5.18. Not even the smallest letter or the tiniest stroke in the Bible will ever disappear. Why? Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that God's word is inspired. It's from his lips. This is his spoken word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote down what God wanted them to write down. He'll preserve this word, and it can't be broken. We can't play fast and loose with this book. So many people today are acting just like Thomas Jefferson did. Thomas Jefferson had a Bible, and his copy of God's Word had to conform with his views. And so he literally took a little knife, and he cut out portions of the Bible that he didn't like, that he didn't agree with. Um, Thomas Jefferson thought hell was a terrible idea. It is. It's real. And so he cut out every mention of hell in the Bible. He thought anything supernatural was impossible. So he cut out everything supernatural from the parting of the Red Sea to the resurrection of Jesus. We would look at that and we would say, that's obviously wrong, but we tend to do that. What places are there in God's word that you go, man, I don't like that and I wish it weren't there and you struggle to submit to it? 
If the scriptures can never be broken, then we need to take them as a whole. And we can't just throw aside whatever we want to throw aside. You can't do that. So Jesus' brilliance is on display. And as he kind of catches them, he says something amazing. He's slowing them down. They pick up stones to stone him, and as they're poised and ready to strike, he says, can I ask you a question before you do that? And as he asks the question, they slow down for a little bit. And then he says, verse 37, and this is number two, we not only see Jesus' brilliance, we see his graciousness. He says this, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Look, if there's anyone for whom it is too late to be saved, it's people who are holding stones to kill Jesus, right? If there's anybody who is a hopeless, lost cause, it's these people. But Jesus doesn't see that. He gives them one final offer, one final invitation. And he says, look, if I'm not doing the works of my father, don't believe me. But the works that I'm doing confirm my words, what I claim about myself. And if I'm doing the works of my father, then if you find it hard to believe my words, then forget about that for now and just let the works lead you to belief in my words. Look at how he says it. Verse 38, if I do them, meaning the works of my father, if I'm doing miraculous works that can only be done by God, which Nicodemus said in John chapter 3, they knew that, then though you don't believe me in my words, believe the works that I'm doing so that you may, and my Bible says know and understand. In the Greek, it's, it's literally uh, know and know. It's, it's uh, nosko, the, the Greek word. Uh, where we get gnosis, like Gnostic gospels, heresies that we understand, all dealing with knowledge, um, so that you may know and know. Uh, the first know is used in the past tense, and the second know is used in the present tense. So what Jesus is saying is this. Let the works that I do, let them enable you to know that I'm sent by God, and then keep pressing into, if he's sent by God, we have to listen to his words. Let, just don't look at my words right now. Just stare at my works and decide, am I a man sent by God? And if you believe that these are works done only by a man who is sent by God, then now start believing in my words. He's giving them an invitation one last time. Come to know and keep on growing in that knowledge is what he's saying. Now this, just very quickly, we have to make the point. Many times... In evangelicalism, we tend to say there are people that we should not proclaim the gospel to because they are, quote-unquote, pearls before swine. Um, Maybe one day we'll study that text. You guys know where that's from, right? Matthew chapter 7. The verse that comes right before that is take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's. And it's specifically talking about a brother. So... I'm more towards the opinion of that interpretation that it's more of like Proverbs 26, 4. Don't answer a fool according to their folly if they aren't willing to hear you and to be corrected and to be brought back in repentance. Don't throw pearls of, of correction and truth and knowledge to a believer. Don't do that if they're not in a place where they're ready to hear that. Proverbs 30, don't press the nose because it's just going to bleed. Don't stir up strife if they're not ready for it. 
But the bottom line is, if that verse does mean don't share the gospel with people who are so hard they won't hear it, I don't know who those people are. Because this verse says there are Pharisees and Sadducees holding stones, and Jesus says, will you believe? He still shares the gospel with them. See his grace on display. Jesus says, I've given works and words, always words and works, so let the works point you to the fact that the words are true. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. And what's their response? Verse 39, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So after his brilliance being put on display, after his graciousness being put on display, they still will not have it, and they, leave, and they want to pick up stones to stone him, and he leaves. He leaves. But it doesn't end there. If I'm John writing this gospel, I end it there. Ministry's done. I'm out of Jerusalem. I'm walking around, and I'm going to come back for Palm Sunday. I would end it there. But why does John give us verses 40, 41, and 42? I think it's because he wants to compare the religious leader's unbelief to the the Jewish people's true belief beyond the Jordan. Verse 40, this is Jesus' preeminence. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, no work, John wouldn't perform any works. He wasn't an apostle. Only the apostles were given the gifts of sign works, sign and miracles and wonders and signs. So he's not an apostle. He's not doing miracles. Yet everything John said about this man is true. So they believe even though John the Baptist did no works. The religious leaders will not believe even though Jesus did a multitude of works. Verse 42, they believe in Jesus, they believe in John, just because it was the truth. Simply because they were believing the words. These genuine believers believed John's words without any miracles, The religious leaders didn't even believe Jesus with the miracles. Believers see miracles as secondary to the truth. They just affirm the truth. But if we don't have miracles, I'm still fine because I have truth. Religious leaders are constantly demanding signs. Show us signs. We don't need to hear the truth. Show us signs. And even when they get the signs, they will not believe. By the way, this is the last mention of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. And I find that so amazing because remember John's prayer for himself? John chapter 3, verse 30. I must decrease, he must increase. And slowly but surely, John is just kind of taken out of the book. And now we're just going to see Jesus on full display. It's kind of Jesus, John, Jesus, John, Jesus, John. And now John's gone, and it's just Jesus all the way. This is the last reference to John. He has decreased all the way so that Jesus can increase all the way. So why does John, the gospel writer, end chapter 10 with this section? It's what these banners are here for, right? The gospel of John is written so that we would believe. So we've seen unbelief on full display in the religious leaders. And the question is, well, why aren't they believing in the works? Uh, What do we do if we want to believe? How do we believe? You have to be like these people who believed John's message. Where does saving faith come from? What's the first step for you, humanly speaking, to receive saving faith, to have saving faith? Remember what John said about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I don't need to see a miracle. I don't need to see magnificent signs and wonders. I need a perfect Savior who can take my sin upon himself, do away with it, 
and offer me a perfect record of righteousness. These believers across the Jordan are humble. True saving faith comes from a heart that's bankrupt and ready to receive the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, as this chapter ends, I think that we are faced with the question, who do you believe Jesus is and what are you going to do about it? Jesus is God. You can't take him neutrally. These Pharisees don't. These religious leaders don't. You either say he claims to be God when he's not and we're going to kill him, or you say he's the Son of God and I bow the knee to him. Sometimes I think believers tend to think, I know a lot about Jesus and there's not really much more I can learn about him. Every word and every page of the scriptures can help us understand more about our Savior. And as we come to this table, we need to come, not like the religious leaders saying, I'm really that, I'm not that bad, I'm really good, and, and I'm going to do good things to cleanse myself. We need to come as the crowds did beyond the Jordan saying, we are helpless if we don't have a, a substitute. Uh, we need a lamb to come and to take our place. And we're doing this every year, slaughtering a lamb, and it's getting old, and, and I'm not changing, I'm still a sinner, and, and I know that when I die... I'm going to give an account for my sin. And that's why John says, prepare your hearts because the Lamb's coming to take away your sin once and for all. So when we come to this table, we come to a level playing field. This is level ground. If you come to this table, if you come to Calvary thinking, I have something to offer God and I'm better than those around me, you cannot come at all. You're at the wrong place. But if you come here saying, I am unworthy in need of grace and I have nothing to offer you but my sin. That's all. The only thing that we give to Jesus in this exchange is our sin. And he says, I will graciously take that because I love you and I will give you my righteousness. If you believe that with all of your heart and come humbly to this table to celebrate what Jesus did in your place, on your behalf, this is a moment of joyous celebration. Even as we've been studying with the cross-centered life, we do not perform a certain way to earn God's favor. It's legalism. We, we don't have any fear of condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, because all of our guilt and shame has been removed because of what Jesus did. So if you feel guilt this morning, if you feel shame this morning, will you simply believe the gospel and come to these elements and say, I have been forgiven, washed clean once and for all. As we stare at the Savior who was killed in our place, we're staring at a brilliant, gracious, preeminent. He's better than John. He's better than everyone. We come to the Savior who loves our souls and died to make them his own. Father, I pray that as we celebrate a time of communion at the Lord's table, I pray that we would be encouraged that we would be reminded again and again of your love for us. May we stare inward and see there is nothing of merit that would ever gain me access before you or gain love. And may that drive us to the cross to see that it is the work of Jesus that gains us a right standing. It's the work of our Savior that gains us access. May we celebrate that beautiful transaction and, and stake our, our hope and our, our foundation 
in Jesus and in him alone. We pray in his precious name.